Just a heads up that this is a conversation about trauma. It doesn't include specific descriptions of abuse, but it does go over forms of trauma and abuse that some may find triggering. Paul says, he who prays in tongues doesn't speak to men, but speaks to God, and no one understands what he says. However, in the spirit, he speaks mysteries. They're mysterious to the known language. They're mysterious to our mind. It'll actually sound like gibberish or gobbledygook. You receive it when you get filled with the Spirit, when you get baptized in the Spirit. You're listening to Spoken Through, an audio series on leaving evangelical Pentecostalism. I'm Alec Cowan. My name is Katherine Keller, and I am a psychologist in Dallas, Texas, and I specialize in spiritual abuse, religious trauma, as well as complex trauma and PTSD, which is post-traumatic stress disorder. How do you define spiritual abuse? Boiled down, it's basically when religion or spirituality is used in such a way that is harmful to another person at times resulting in trauma responses. I have a definition here that comes from from the literature from Johnson and Van Bonderen in 1991, and they define it as the mistreatment of a person who is in need of help, support, or greater spiritual empowerment with the result of weakening, undermining, or decreasing that person's spiritual empowerment. And let me blast you with another one, and that'll kind of set some context for us to talk about examples. This one comes from a a paper written by Ward in 2011, and they describe spiritual abuse as a misuse of power in a spiritual context, whereby spiritual authority is distorted to the detriment of those under its leadership. It is a multifaceted and multilayered experience that includes acts of commission and omission aimed at producing conformity. It is both process and event influencing one's inner and outer worlds and has the potential to affect the biological, psychological, social, and spiritual domains of the individual. So that one is pretty encompassing. And so I I like those two um, descriptions of spiritual abuse to kind of set the stage Some of the clients I work with have been through conversion therapy or reparative therapy, which is a kind of, I'm using therapy in air quotes here, it's a kind of non-therapy to try to get people that identify as LGBTQ to not be that anymore. And so they're basically trying to make them heterosexual, which is absolutely ineffective. It's not possible. As you can imagine, it's really harmful and traumatic to go through that. Some doctrines 
that are used to kind of control or hurt people are really harmful. For example, in domestic violence situations, there are perpetrators who use, um, if you want to talk about spiritual abuse through a Christian lens, although spiritual abuse happens in all different kinds of faith traditions, but some perpetrators of domestic violence might use b- biblical texts to control their victims, their partners, by saying like, women need to submit and you have to submit to me and kind of threatening that their womanhood and their godliness is basically shaming them um, into submission as they're, as they're abusing them. Also, it is the case with clergy sexual abuse. There's obviously kind of intersecting abuses there with the sexual abuse. And when that happens with a spiritual leader, a priest, a minister, a pastor, or just any leader, someone in authority in the church, it's devastating in terms of the sexual abuse. And the spiritual element of that just kind of amps it up a bit because of the meaning that a lot of people place around spiritual leaders. And so those are two examples of domestic violence and clergy sexual abuse of when spiritual abuse happens in parallel with other kinds of abuse. But spiritual abuse can also happen by itself without necessarily intersecting with other kinds of abuse. And so that looks, you know, when people use scriptures to control or have environments or churches or ministries with really high expectations, high control to pressure people, to shame people. People can get really emotionally bruised and wounded in in those kinds of environments. It could look like gender roles, like women, for example, not being allowed to preach or teach or be in positions of, of power and authority. There's a lot of abuse around purity culture. Can you really quickly um, describe what that is? So purity culture is just this idea that it's just almost like a worshiping of virginity, really, and what what is considered by some as sexual purity, sexual morality. And so they really, it really focuses on virginity, especially for girls and women, for boys and men as well, but the focus tends to be on girls and women. Purity culture in general just really values waiting until you're married. Again, assumption that one would be married or become married at some point, heterosexually that is. The idea is that you have to wait until you're married to have sex. There's a real shame around um, bodies, around masturbation. This idea that women have to, quote unquote, don't let a man stumble by wearing clothes that are very conservative and not revealing at all. And anyway, it's a whole it's a whole thing. And it really disconnects people from their own bodies because, you know, sexuality and sexual activity and just we are sexual beings. Humans are sexual beings. And so when we're not allowed to engage in what would otherwise be normal, healthy sexual development, it creates this disconnect from our bodies, which can be so shameful and so confusing for people. It just creates this really inappropriate culture where, you know, consent is not taught because like, well, if you're not having sex, then you you don't need you don't need consent because there's just this assumption that everyone's following the rule. Well, people don't learn how to listen to their intuitions and they don't know how to say no because that's never taught. And it's a horrible, you know, culture that develops that make kids makes kids really vulnerable to abuse. So yeah, and for girls and women raised in that in that culture, yeah, have a lot to unpack later in life in terms of consent and their bodies and all of that. 
what are some of the kind of, I guess, common markers of spiritual abuse that you see coming out of the, the Pentecostal faith? Yes. So, okay. So, so many things. <laughs> Very anti-LGBTQAI. So that's one thing. The purity culture thing is another thing. I think in some evangelical and Pentecostal traditions, there's this idea of, and they wouldn't call it this, but there tends to be this sort of culture of spiritual elitism. And with some churches that believe in what are considered the signing gifts of the Holy Spirit, especially Pentecostal churches, you know, like the gift of tongues, the gift of prophecy, words of knowledge, words of wisdom, those gifts that are just really sensational, I guess. <laughs> and and a really, you know, neat thing when someone has some of those gifts, it's kind of dazzling and wow, and how did you know what I was thinking? And God must really be here and, and that kind of thing, which as you can imagine, and perhaps have experienced, creates this elite culture, you know? So if I don't speak in tongues, if I don't sit and wait on God and get a word for someone straight from God that, you know, to bless them, then I'm less of a Christian. And that is so shameful, you know? And so there is this sort of internalized shame of like, oh my gosh, I don't, I don't, I don't meet the standards for this environment. What's wrong with me? And oh, it's such a big thing because there's so much just internalized shame around something is wrong with me if I'm not a, if I don't have these gifts. Well, if God didn't give me this gift, maybe I have some sin hidden in the pocket in a corner somewhere that I have to repent of. Even the doctrine of the, the idea that we are sinners saved by grace, you know, even that which I realize is foundational to a lot, not all, but a lot of Christian traditions actually fosters a kind of shame because it's kind of like I'm worthless without God saving me. And so from the foundation of some traditions, there's just shame kind of baked into the to the foundation of that, which lends itself to a lot of pain. When you're speaking with someone, I mean, how do you approach that idea of shame or guilt? And I guess you know, another, another word for that is kind of a perfectionism, a, mm -hmm. a, a drive for spiritual perfectionism. Yeah. So it really, it, there's so much context to, you know, when I, in my clinical work with clients, there's so much context to consider. And so it's, it's hard to say exactly. So there's this phrase, high control religion that I use just to kind of put that out there with the idea that religious groups are on a continuum in terms of control. So like a super high control religion would be a cult or, you know, or cult-like groups all the way down to, you know, faith traditions that maybe are kind of medium to moderate or, or low, or maybe culturally there's patriarchy, there's, you know, other pieces there that are on the continuum of abusive or harmful, but maybe they're not as um, extreme as some. And so sometimes I see, I see clients that are in a faith tradition that may be somewhat high control and they're just kind of working through, hey, I don't believe that, you know, as a woman, I don't believe that I, I'm not allowed to have a job. Like I'm going to, you know, explore this and work through it. And maybe they'll come to some kind of conclusion and stay in their tradition. Others, it's a real like, oh, you know, they are really deconstructing, which is kind of another buzzword where basically people are examining what they've always believed and what they've been taught to believe. And so some people come in and they're really just starting to deconstruct. And it, it's they're like, hey, wait a second, you know, God's love is supposed to be 
unconditional. And yet my church is completely conditional. If I'm not volunteering every Sunday and every Wednesday or Saturday or whatever, if I'm not giving X percentage of my income, if, if I'm having sex outside of marriage, if I'm you know like doing all these things, if I'm not perfect, essentially, hey, wait a second, that's not, they're saying God is one way and yet they're behaving as if God is a different way. What is going on here? Sometimes it's kind of a matter of, okay, they're just ready to process this out loud. You know, part of the problem and a a characteristic of these high control groups is they're very insular and people in the group are sort of trained to go to the group with problems. So it becomes very circular. So if you're starting to question your faith or doubt your faith, first of all, you really can't go to someone in the group. Secondly, if you are brave enough to do that, say, hey, like, I'm not sure about this. They're going to typically direct you back to the group or back to that circular reasoning or give an external reason. Oh, well, maybe Satan is leading you astray or the devil is leading you astray or you're possessed or you're oppressed or something like that by evil spirits, which is illogical. Most people would consider that to be pretty illogical. But when you're in a culture like that and and that's the belief system, it's like really scary. So we've talked about shame as a piece of, of spiritual abuse. Fear is another one. You know, it's like, gosh, I don't want to fall away from God. Maybe I shouldn't have those thoughts. Oh, I'll pray more. I'll do better. I'll be on my best behavior. And maybe God will accept me, you know, for forgive me for having these doubts. Yeah, and, and partially fear of of falling away from God or mm-hmm. or not achieving that validation. But I think also just in my own experience, just kind of a general fear of the world, just kind of this yes. general anxiety and fear of of both just everything is against you, and then also yes. you know I guess end time fear, which is maybe hundred uh, percent. Yeah. Yes, lots of fear, and this kind of in group out group culture, which basically is kind of like. Those who are in, we get it. And in high control groups, there's a whole lot of cultural nuance to the point where like words, certain certain language, like in, in um, cult literature language, they call it loading of the language. It's kind of like, oh, I don't want to fall away. Or the word blessed is very triggering for a lot of people. But, you know, every church and every tradition has their own kind of buzzwords, you know, but all that serves to kind of maintain this insular culture. And it's kind of like this idea that we are it, we're the elite, we're the chosen, and people in the world, again, I'm using air quotes, people in the world don't get it. They fall short. And not only do they not get it, our job is to minister to them so that they do get it because we we know better and we have kind of cornered the market on God, if you will. And so we're going to try to reach out to them and sort of bring them into the fold, basically meaning into our conformity. So when someone starts to doubt their faith or when things start to not make sense, it's where do they take that? It's like, well, they can't really take it to their church because it won't be accepted. But because of the programming, if you will, the indoctrination, they're scared to take it oftentimes outside of the church because there's, it's terrifying. Gosh, what if this person leads me astray? That would be awful. And and this is, oh, it just gets lodged so deeply. And so one of my clients, actually, I've heard this several times, but there's a client I'm thinking of and sharing this story who has, you know, largely deconstructed out of the faith tradition that they were raised in and will say, I don't believe in hell, but I'm scared to go there. And that's just the dissonance. I don't believe it anymore, but it's still terrifying. 
I've heard people say too, I don't believe in God, but I'm afraid of him. Again, gendered there with that gendering God, but I don't believe in God, but I'm afraid of God. Yeah, I've heard that frequently from folks and even, I mean, in my own life, this this idea of there's there's still like, even if you're far removed from it for, for years, decades, there are certain actions right. or, or or certain kind of media or, or just things that you, you just, there's kind of just almost this reflex in, in yes. the back of your head that, that it just wants you to turn away or, or feel just, yeah, it doesn't yes. really ever, ever leave. Right, right. The good news is that there is healing from this, from spiritual abuse and from the trauma that ensues with spiritual abuse, with that religious trauma. Um, But you're absolutely right. It's so, it's just, it's neurological really, because those messages over time, like any good marketer understands messages over time, your neurons wire together and it just gets reinforced. And so deconstructing is not just deconstructing your belief system and, you know, talking about it and thinking of other thoughts. It's literally neurologically kind of untangling and retangling into a place that is a better fit and a healthier fit for you. It's a painful process, but it is possible. It is possible to recover. You you used the word indoctrination and, you know, cultic earlier. And then you also used the, the idea of high control groups. I I mean, I'm curious how you go around the word cult, which I feel has a lot of interesting baggage with it. It, You're absolutely right. It has a lot of interesting baggage. In fact, the International Cultic Studies Association, or otherwise known as ICSA, they have been around for decades. And they, a few years ago, so basically, the themes are the same. Like, they are the same. The themes that happen in cults that are the same that happen in high control groups regarding, you know, Pentecostal groups, other fundamentalist groups, evangelical groups, what have you. They might look a little bit different based on the culture of the group. But because a lot of Christian groups are so insular, there's just this aversion to the word cult. And even people coming out of high control Christianity don't like the word cult. Because Christians don't seem, Christians or ex-Christians don't seem to be as bothered by the term spiritual abuse or religious trauma. In fact, those terms tend to, at least I've noticed, tend to be more empowering, but they really don't identify with the term cult, you know, because I think, I think there's probably a lot of reasons for that. Cults just sound very extreme and the word cult often conjures up an image of, you know, mass suicide by Kool-Aid and stuff that happened in Waco years ago and really extreme groups that end in death. And so another piece around around cults is that not all of them are religious or spiritual, and yet the same themes apply even in those groups. And so, you know, talking about Christian indoctrination, you can use the word indoctrination, the cult word equivalent, if you will, for that would be brainwashing. But it's really, it's not not a very different process. It's pretty much the same process when the indoctrination is extreme, when there's not a lot of room for freedom and for exploration and people developing their own sense of identity and their own belief system. It it becomes a kind of brainwashing for sure. Do you see childhood trauma and spiritual trauma as being frequently intertwined? Um, I'm thinking especially of folks who've grown up in the church and how spiritual abuse is maybe reflected through their childhood experiences. Well, yeah, and it it's it's really hard because you know, religion is 
supposed to, again with the air quotes, be helpful, not harmful. And so if you have had a childhood and kids don't, you know, aren't always, depending on the age of the child, aren't always able to think like, I'm not having a good childhood, you know, they're just looking for connection. They're looking for validation. And churches have really fun cultures and children's ministries and stuff like that. And they're very community focused. And so unfortunately for people that have trauma in their childhoods that also are, you know, intersect with high control religious groups, it can, it it can just be so destructive because they're often looking to that spiritual community as a place of comfort and to be seen and to be known. And, and that community in and of itself is abusive. And so it's, it's always so heartbreaking that the very place that's supposed to help someone that's in a lot of pain is actually harming them. It just kind of adds a layer to the harm that they've already experienced. And then what I kind of, I, I identify childhood trauma kind of broadly because, you know, some people have experiences of sexual abuse or physical abuse. Trauma also includes emotional neglect. For some, it's also traumatic to be misattuned to. And so sometimes it's not overt. Some people don't necessarily have acts of abuse, but sort of acts of commission, if you will, where maybe their emotions weren't attuned to or they weren't fostered and it left them feeling like kind of insecure or unsure of themselves. And then they find this, you know, they don't really know who they are. And then they connect with a spiritual community who gives them an identity. Hey, now your identity is in Christ. And here's all, here's all the things about that. And here's what you have to do to, you know, maintain this be a card-carrying member of of this church or whatnot. And it's like, oh, wow, I needed that. I didn't get that from my family. And so I'm getting it from the church. And so then if they ever get out of the church or deconstruct or or have a separation for whatever reason from the church, there's not a lot to go back to in terms of their own identity. And it's really devastating. It seems like it makes a lot more sense for people who are older to come into something like Pentecostalism, um, you know, to find community or purpose. Uh, for kids, though, I think I feel like it's a much different experience. And when you're taken out of that religious context, um, you struggle to find something to replace it, or or you just experience like what is basically a culture shock. Right. That is absolutely all of that is so so on point. A tremendous amount of grief often there's a grief of the community, the built-in friends that come in religious groups, the the grief of the belief system. Like you said, there's always a reason for something, you know, things can always be explained away, you know, and high control groups tend to be very black and white in their thinking, you know, like they have, you know, they have reasons for everything. And so there's a certain kind of security that comes with that certainty, even if that certainty is a false sense of certainty on, on the other end. When, when you're in it, it, it's really nice to feel like, oh, this is what's true. And there's a heaven and there's a hell and here's God came and da, 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 all these things. There's a security in that. And so there, there can be a, a definite grief of that belief system and a grief of, of the identity. I mean, that piece is big too, because if your whole identity is wrapped up in the church or in God or what have you, it's like, God, who the hell am I? And now that I'm out, you know, what do I like? What kind of music do I like? What am I into? For some people that 
give their lives away to the church. You know, they go to church their whole lives and then they become missionaries and, you know, they, they might not have any money saved up because of, depending on the level of, of control of the church, they might not have any transferable job skills, those kinds of things. There's just a lot of loss of time. But with that, for some, there can also be a freedom. It's like, oh my gosh, I, I didn't know I could think this way. I, I didn't know how creative I was as a person until I got out of this oppressive system. And so there's lots and lots of different reactions that come. And it, it takes a while. I mean, I would say it kind of comes in in waves. You know, some people kind of latch on to their process in different ways. For some people, it's, oh my gosh, I'm going to study the Bible and go to seminary and learn about it and learn that there are different ways to interpret scriptures. And the way that I was taught isn't the only way. You know, other people are like, screw that. I don't care about the Bible. I'm going to just like live my life and I'm going to, you know, get really into my body because there's so, like I was saying earlier, there's so much oppression and separation from people with their, with our own bodies. You know, the, there's this idea that our bodies are so sinful and the flesh is weak and all these things. And so that, that just impacts people in so many ways. So some people kind of reclaim themselves take back their control and heal by really focusing a lot on their body. So like yoga practices and even exercise and, you know, sexual freedom that they've never experienced before and and things like that. So the process looks different for different people, but yeah, certainly lots of, lots of different ways that people go about that process of deconstructing. For someone who is thinking they've either gone through spiritual abuse or is kind of trying to piece that together, when they're trying to look for resources as to kind of how to deal with it and deal through it, what kind of recommendations do you have? Sure. So there, there's information online. There's different communities for people that are out there. Like Julianne Smith is a, a blogger. She has a community online called Spiritual Sounding Board. There's a, a man that calls himself the Naked Pastor, and he's an artist. And he has a community on Instagram where he just, he kind of I think processes his stuff through art. And it's really provocative and provides a grounds for conversation and you can kind of read the threads and and see the conversation there. Those are just two. There's several more out there, but there's a website, the Reclamation Collective is a website that has a search feature for therapists that specialize in religious trauma by state. And it includes Canada. And there's some providers up there. And so they have just, you know, reached out to other therapists who also specialize in this issue And so for people that want to check that out, to go to therapy, they can check that out. For anyone who happens to be on the app Clubhouse, there are so many conversations very regularly about spiritual abuse and religious trauma, purity culture, spiritual abuse for people of color, spiritual abuse for different, you know, sects. Like, so there's, there's a lot out there. There are some books out there. There's a man named Brad Sargent who has a website called The Futurist Guy, I believe. And he's got tons of resources, books, and articles. He tends to deconstruct or analyze, I should say, the different spiritually abusive people or events that have happened. He kind of is newsy and chronicles all, all the history of all that and kind of helps unpack all of that. So it's pretty practical and helpful in that way. How important is it for people to get together on forums and to talk with each other about their experience? I think it's so powerful to be with groups of people and to share your story, especially especially when there are groups that are specific to those 
ministries or churches, because of that cultural nuance, there's just a sense of like, oh, you get it. And okay, we both were there for however long and we're both coming out of it. And you get what I mean. Like when someone leaves the group and when when the pastors say like that person won't be contacted again because shunning is something that happens in a lot of these high control groups, There, there's a sense of like, oh, you and I from the same ex group, we know, we know what they're saying about us. And that is so painful, but we understand each other in that. And a billion other examples of that too. But I really, I love those groups for people. I think they're so helpful. If you have a friend or someone you meet who is talking with you about something like a spiritual abuse moment or scenario or or just like history and experience, what are recommended ways of talking with them about that? Yeah, I actually, I really appreciate that question because with any kind of trauma recovery, People sometimes go to extremes of either shutting down and being silent or what they call trauma dumping, where it's like, here's all my shit, (laughs) you know, here's all my trauma. And both sides of, they're both sides of the same coin of being pretty disconnected. And so a friend or, or someone talking to someone that's been through religious trauma, I just think it's helpful to really listen and to reflect what you're hearing and to ask, you know, you know, how is it to talk about it? Kind of like here and now live offering a lot of appreciation for sharing because it is trauma just like any other trauma. So when someone opens up about, you know, their parent being an alcoholic or a parent being verbally abusive or something like that, it's always a big share, you know, and so acknowledging the vulnerability that they're demonstrating in in that disclosure can be really helpful and kind of holding in mind that concept of consent like does this person really want to share if it veers into trauma dumping if if you're sensing that just kind of asking you know are you are you, you know I'm happy to hear thank you so much for sharing does this feel helpful for you just that lot, lot of empathy you know relentless empathy if people yeah. are sharing so that's probably what i'd say That was Dr. Katherine Keller, a Dallas-based therapist specializing in spiritual abuse, child trauma, and PTSD. You can find her information at dallastherapycollective.com. You can find more resources on understanding spiritual abuse and finding help at spiritualabuseresources.com. This is Spoken Through, a documentary project on Pentecostalism produced, reported, and scored by me, Alec Cowan. You can listen to the full series at alekcowan.com slash spoken through.